If you have your Bibles this morning, I hope you'll join me in 1 Corinthians chapter number 14. 1 Corinthians chapter number 14. And while you're finding your place there in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'm just a little curious uh, this uh, morning. Do we have any kindergarten teachers in here today? If you're a kindergarten teacher, will you just lift your hand? Okay, all right, good, very good. Did you hear the story about the kindergarten teacher? Uh, she was there before her kindergarten class, and she was teaching them about self-esteem. And in teaching them about self-esteem, she just simply said to her little class, she said, now, if any of you in here feel dumb, I want you to stand up, stand to your feet. She didn't think anybody was going to stand because she was going to make the point, Carrie, that, uh, see, there's nobody dumb in this class. Well, she waited too long, and little Johnny stood up. And she looked at Johnny, and Johnny looked at her, and the teacher said, now, Johnny, do you really think that you're dumb? To which little Johnny stuck his fingers in his pocket and kicked his foot around. He said, no, ma'am, I just hate seeing you stand there all by yourself. <laughs> Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter number 14. We're going to pick up where we left off in verse number 6. Let me give you just a little bit of background here. Paul is not calling the church at Corinth dumb. He's not calling them dumb. He is, however, calling them immature little children. He did. He said, you're acting just like kids. And the reason why he says that they're acting just like kids is because they're only focusing on themselves. It's all about them. It's all about their toys. It's all about highlighting themselves. And in this particular section, that is chapters 12 through 14, Paul is focusing on spiritual gifts. In, verse, or in chapter number 14, he's pinpointing specifically the gift of tongues. Now, it's very important that when we study this passage of Scripture, we clearly understand the background. Because if you don't understand the background, you'll walk away making this text a pretext. And any time you do that, you're in danger of false doctrine. It's vitally important because Paul's going to mention about doctrine here in just a few moments. But remember the setting. Remember the context. This all started back in chapter number 12. And Paul began this discussion talking about spiritual giftedness because there were three distinct problems that were happening at the church of Corinth. Remember, we talked about this in chapter 12. We said in chapter 12, verse 15, they were suffering from what's called gift envy. Gift envy. And that was just simply the thought that they were walking around saying, man, I wish I had that gift. And the reason why they were doing that is because the Corinthians were highlighting their gifts above every other gift. That is, if they had the gift, uh, if you would, of prophecy, of proclaiming the gospel, or, or the gift of tongues, that is, other languages. If they had those gifts, if they were multi-languaged people, they walked around with their chest out saying, my gift's better than your gift of hospitality. Now, the reason why it was such a mess in Corinth is because Corinth is what we know today as present, what would be considerable to present-day Las Vegas. There were multiculturals, multicultures in Corinth. There were all different kinds of people from all different areas. They were from all over the world. Uh, Corinth was a hub that people would come to. And if you wanted to go up north, then you had to go through Corinth. There was a little isthmus there, and it was so much easier to go over that land bridge rather than to sail all the way around Greece. That was just not practical. Uh, people were getting killed doing that. It was easier to go through Corinth. So in going through Corinth, there was a lot of cultures there. 
And because there were a lot of cultures there coming in and going out, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, said there needs to be a church there. When Paul founded the church there and when he uh, built the church there, we know that uh, it was messy. It was messy because inside of Corinth there was all these different temples. You've heard me speak about this before. There was the temple of Aphrodite, uh, the temple of fertility, if you will. And those temple prostitutes were up there, and they men of Corinth that came from all over the regions of the world would go up to that temple and make sacrifices through wicked and debauchery and awful, awful things. And those uh, temple prostitutes would come down into the streets to try to draw me and back up to the temple of Aphrodite. It was a wicked, wicked place. You heard me speak about the temple of Asclepius. It was the temple of healing. You could go to the temple of Asclepius and you could buy a terracotta or clay part of the body uh, that coincide with where you were injured. If you had a broken arm, you could go buy a terracotta broken arm. You could buy that broken arm. You could take it to the altar of Asclepius, place it there. You could do a burnt offering and pray that God would heal, uh, that false god, uh, Asclepius, would heal that particular body part. Now, you couldn't take your souvenir with you. They'd take that body part and put it back on the shelf and have to, you'd have to for the next person to buy. So, there's a really good racket for the temple. But the bottom line was, and they had a meat market in there, the bottom line was this. It was a racket and it was bad and people were falling for it every time and they were praying to the false god of Asclepius. And then there was another temple that uh, I haven't highlighted uh, much until this point. And that's the temple of Apollo. Now, I did talk about the temple of Apollo that's just north of Corinth in a city called Delphi. There was a temple of Apollo there in Corinth. Now, remember, the temple of, of, Del, the temple of Apollo is the largest remaining temple uh, that's located in that part of the world. The ruins. The ruins are, are the most intact. In fact, you could get on an airplane, you could fly out there to Delphi today, and you could tour that, and they will tell you about the Oracle of Delphi. Now, the Oracle of Delphi was the prophetess there inside the Temple of Apollo. And so the way that this thing worked is you go to the Temple of Apollo, and you go to their worship services, and there comes the what they would consider the preacher. They called her the Oracle. The Oracle would stand up and she would begin to speak in erratic, crazy gibberish, a language that nobody in the temple could understand. And then she would interpret what she was saying all on her own. Nobody else spoke this language. Nobody else talked this way. She would fall down on the floor. She'd roll around, foam at the mouth, bark like a dog. It looked everything like a possession of a demon. And it was. It was a false god. There was no Apollo god. But she highlighted that. And it was such the spectacle that people would come from all over the world to see the oracle of Delphi. So much so that what was transpiring up there just north of Corinth bled down into the uh, temple of Apollo in Corinth. And in Corinth, at the, at the temple of Apollo, they started practicing this erratic speech pattern that nobody understood, only they understood, and it was a tongue they would begin to say. And then this tongues that they would speak it would begin to uh, draw people. Everybody was fascinated by this, and they would come from all around to see what was happening there at the temple of Apollo. So much so that the temple of Asclepius, as well as uh, the temple of Aphrodite, said, wait a minute, they're all going to 
to that to the Apollo's temple. We better add that element too. So they started adding that element in their services. And before you know it, you had tongue speakings not only in, in the temple of Apollo, you also had that also in the temple of Asclepius, and then there was also there in the temple of Aphrodite. It was so bad that even it started bleeding into the Christian church. And Paul said, no, wait a minute, hold up. You got to be careful because this is not of God. Remember, when you look at chapter, when you, excuse me, when you read the book of 1 Corinthians, you've got to remember that this is a corrective letter. Paul is writing to correct the misuses of the things that the church at Corinth was experiencing, what they were practicing. We know that there was a, uh, a family that came to Paul and said, listen, we, we've got some issues here that we need to discuss about the church. And Paul addressed those issues in the first seven chapters. And then in chapters 8 and following, we find that Paul is answering the question that the de delegation had, uh, that they were asking, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? Now, they've asked him a question about spiritual gifts. And he's done the evaluation. And he knows about the oracle of Delphi. He knows about what's going on in this tongue-speaking category. And he takes takes three chapters to make his claim and to uh, educate and to help teach the people of Corinth. In chapter 12, we've studied and seen that they had that gift, the gift envy. We also saw that they had gift elevation that simply says, my gift is better than yours. And Paul says, you got to stop that. In chapter 12, verses 29 through 30, they had this gift elevation where they said, your gift ought to be like mine. And Paul said, you can't do that either. And then we come to the close of chapter 12, and Paul simply said this, I'm showing you a better way. You remember that? I show you a better way. And that better way was the way of love. And then in chapter 13, what Paul does is he does a whole exposition on love. And he says, love is the greatest gift of all. And you need to stop speaking gibberish that nobody understands and start speaking clearly and start speaking so everybody can understand why. So that people can get saved. And then at the end of chapter 13 and when we go into chapter number 14, Paul says, okay, now here's the correction I'm going to give you. And he begins his correction in chapter 14, verse 1, as we talked about two weeks ago, when he gave the rule. And the rule was, follow after love. He says, more than anything, what you need to do is you need to follow after love. Pursue love, go after love, chase love, desire the spiritual gift that God's given you, but pursue love, and more than anything, Exercise prophecy. There it is in chapter 14, verse 1. But rather that ye may prophecy. He says, I want you to speak the truth. Now remember what prophecy is. Prophecy is the communication of a truth that was once concealed but is now revealed. That's what New Testament prophecy is. So what was, what was the truth that was concealed in the Old Testament? Jesus. What is the mystery that's been revealed in the New Testament? Jesus. So when Paul says, I want you to prophecy, I desire that you prophecy, what Paul is saying is, I want you to know how to share the gospel. 
I want you to know how to tell people about Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. And you need to know how to do that. And so he sets that rule up. And then he went through the first uh, five verses of, of chapter 14, giving them a beautiful picture and explanation about what he's talking about. And you can go online and you can watch the sermon from that uh, two weeks ago. And then he picks it up in verse number 6. And in verse number 6, he's going to continue to correct the Corinthians' tangled tongue. Notice what he says in verse 6. This is a very lengthy passage. It goes all the way to verse number 19. But follow along with me, if you will. Notice what Scripture says. Now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues... Now, remember the word tongues there is the languages of Corinth. Multicultural, many different languages. He says, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine? And even things without life, giving sound, whether they be a pipe or a harp, except they give a distinct in the sound, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to the battle? So likewise you, or ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Now let me say something parenthetically right here. Verse 14 is the longest uh, correction that you'll ever find in the Bible towards a church, especially in the arena of a doctrine, this being tongues. He is correcting them. It's vitally important, but I want you to see here, Paul is very, very upset about this, and you can sense the sarcasm in his words as he's speaking. Man, he's very sarcastic uh, throughout this. He'll interject some hyperbole. He will give a a little bit of encouragement here, but for the most part, this is there's sarcasm pouring all through this text. He says again in verse 9, so, so likewise, you expect, um, except ye utter by the tongue words that are easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For ye speak into the air. There all it may be so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. Therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice, I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian to me. Now the word voice there in that particular passage of Scripture is speaking about the words that are coming out of my mouth. The language, again, that I'm using. It's a beautiful synonym of languages. I'm using my voice to speak English to you today. Verse 12. Even so, ye, for as much as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel, excel <clears throat> to the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. We'll get to that in a minute. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit. I will pray with understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with understanding also. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupieth the room of the unlearned say amen? Right. How's he going to do that at thy giving thanks, seeing he understands not what you are saying? Now, uh, if you ever had a question whether or not it's right to say amen in church, right there's your answer. 
it is right there. So why do people say amen in church right there? David uh, and I were talking in between the services. He said, you know what? It makes sense now. Those people had an amen corner. How many grew up in church that had an amen corner? Yeah, it's interesting. I had a little group of guys over on one side, and a preacher would turn to him and said, can I get an amen or uh, amen or, or what, whatever the case may be. My, my pastor growing up, uh, Philip Ellen, he'd say, I need an amen right there. <laughs> he'd tell you when he needed his amen. He, bless God, he wouldn't wait for it. He, I need one right there. All right, where am I at? Here we go. 17. For thou verily givest thanks well. There's the encouragement. But here it's not. The other is not edified. I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. There are three things in particular in this text that I want to show you today that I hope will be an encouragement to you as we study how Paul corrected the tangled tongue of the Corinthians. Number one, the first thing he said, now remember the context here is the church, the church being together. So he says when you come together in a church, number one, there needs to be an understandable communication. An understandable communication. We see that in verses 6 through 9. An understandable communication. Then what Paul does is he goes on to say that there's some clearly un understandable ways of speaking. And he lists four of those. You saw the four. Let's look at them very carefully. He says the first one is revelation. The term revelation means the reception of truth from God. He says when you come to church and you speak to one another and the communication you use, there ought to be the revelation ought to be, exp ought to be exposed. That, that is, there ought to be an exposition of the revelation of God. What he's saying here is we need to highlight the completed revelation of God, and that is the Word of God. We didn't come here today to see what the preacher thought. We came here to say, what does the Bible say? What does the Word of God say? What does the Scripture say to us? How does the Scriptures encourage us today? It encourages us from the fact that this book is without error. It's 100% accurate. And what the Bible said in the first century is just as relevant today as it was back then. And when the Bible says that when we come together, we ought to speak revelation, he's saying we ought to preach the Word of God. The Bible ought to be our primary uh, place that we go to for truth. He says there ought to be revelation. Number two, he also says that we ought to speak with knowledge. That is the practical understanding of God's truth. The practical understanding of God's truth. That is, it ought to be preached in such a way that we all understand it. We ought to walk away from here going, man, you know what? That makes sense. That's exactly what the Word of God says. Uh, there ought to be some spur, if you would, of, of questions from the perspective of, man, how can I be more like Jesus in regards to that? How can our church be more biblical as that first century church, as Paul challenged them uh, to be? There ought to be knowledge. And then he says prophecy again. The word prophecy or prophesying here in the text is talking once again about the gospel. The exposing, of you will, of that which was a mystery, that is the Messiah, has now been revealed in the New Testament. And then we find number four, the fourth one he says there is doctrine. 
There's a lot of preachers out there today that say doctrine's not important. That's not what Paul said. Paul said doctrine is very important. The teaching, if you would, that we communicate, uh, if you would, of the practical instruction, this teaching, the doctrinal principles of the Word of God need to be taught in such a way that we receive it and we know it. In fact, he uses an illustration here in verses 7 through 9 about sounds and music and instruments. He just simply says a trumpet ought to be a trumpet and a uh, saxophone ought to be a saxophone. The drums ought to be a drum. The uh, cymbals ought to be cymbals. These devices have an intended purpose and we understand what those purposes are. In particular, he's referring to to the sounds the instrument made when it was time for the army to go into battle. When it was time for the army to go into battle and the cadence to march and the drums would, 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 would rattle as they would drum and march to the beat of the drum. And then when it was time to go to war, bless God, they did not hear some wimpy little trumpet player uh, play that little song like we hear at Christmas time. Sleigh bells were right there at the end. You know, the trumpet sounds like the horse. That was a sound of defeat. He, nobody wants to hear that. How do we know that we're going to go to war if it's not blasted out? Bum, 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 bum. Let's all go to war. That's what he's referring to. He says the same is true with your voice. Look at what he says in verse number 9. He says, so likewise ye expect ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood. How shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Paul says, man, you've got to speak easy, clear words so people can, can understand what you're saying. Don't speak this gibberish that you're hearing there in the temple of, of Apollo. Don't, don't mimic the oracle of Delphi. Those are false gods that you're mimicking. You need to mimic Christ. And Christ is a God of order. He's a God that has tangible languages. And he's given these languages across the planet that we might understand one another and communicate in such a way that we might communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, so when you utter your speech, he says, don't throw your words into the air. That's what he means there in verse number 9. He says, for you shall speak into the air. That word means to take your words and just throw them in the trash. Don't throw your words in the trash. He says, this gibberish that the church, that you're practicing in the churches, like the Oracle of Delphi, you're throwing your words in the trash. People are walking out going, this, I don't know what they said. Do you know what they said? I don't know what they said. We don't know what they said. He gives us this understandable communication that ought to be in the church. Number two, the second thing I want you to notice here. In verses 10 through 12, we see a rational explanation. There's a rational explanation as to why Paul said what he said. In fact, there are three. Let me show them to you if I could. Number one, the first thing he says, there are many languages in the world. He said, think about it. There are many languages in the world. Verse 10. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without uh, signification. What's he saying there? He's saying that every language that people speak, it has meaning. And the meaning that they have in this case is stated positively. He's pointing out that every language has meaning. 
Uh, we did a, a little survey here a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was trying to find out how many people are multilingual, bilingual, more than one language, and we've got several of them in this service. And I know some might be on vacation. I'm not. I'm not multilingual. And I said I do know a little bit of Spanish. I know enough to get me in trouble. In fact, I love going to Spanish or Mexican restaurants. I, that's one of my favorite uh, types of uh, meals to have. And, and uh, I like to go sometimes with other people, with the staff and all. And I'll sit down there and, and the waiter or waitress will come and start pouring water. And usually the individuals pouring water, they don't know much English at all. And uh, so I'll just turn to them and I do my best and say, Deus le bendiga. And the staff looks at me like a calf looking at a new gate. And the uh, Hispanic person usually giggles a little bit and smiles and walks away. And that's usually because what I said was um, uh, my attempt to say, God bless you. But I do it in a southern slang. And so they look at me kind of cockeyed, and then sometimes they'll say it back, and, uh, and then they'll say it back to me, Deus living dia. But then I like to have a lot of fun with them. And when they come back up a second time, I like to look at them and say my extended Spanish, Los gatos en tortugas en mi pantalones, Padre Gusta. Some of you that speak Spanish, you're just like, oh, that is hilarious. In fact, you're going, the others that are in here going, what? What's so funny? I don't understand it. What's going on? This is exactly what was happening at Corinth. Now, it's time for the interpretation. What did the preacher just say? In jest and in fun, I said, I like turtles and cats. They're in my pants, and Daddy likes it. <laughs> Without end, it has caused a giggle to erupt in the church. And the individual that received that, I had to show them my pockets. No, I'm just kidding. I don't really have cats and turtles in my, in my pockets. But it gives an opportunity to make a connection Paul says in this text, in the Bible, it's clear. He says, listen, if you don't talk in such a language where people don't understand, they're confused. And so there's got to be an interpretation if they're going to understand. And this rational explanation that he gives here is simply this. There are many languages in the world. And then in verse number 11, he says, an unknown language always causes division. Look at verse 11. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, if I know not the meaning of the voice... I shall be unto him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh shall be a barbarian to me. Paul simply says there are languages out there that we have yet to interpret. We don't know them all yet. And the bottom line is when we hear those languages, it's like two barbarians talking to one another. The term barbarian was used across Roman culture in reference to an individual that could not communicate with another individual. I mean, it was all uh, uh, languages that had to deal with, with uh, 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 sign language. Eat. Shane. Who are you? You know, I mean, it's not talking to Tarzan for the first time. It just didn't make any sense. And he says, if you do that in the church, then nobody's going to understand. They're going to look at you like a barbarian, like you are crazy. He says, so in regards to known languages, they always, or unknown languages, they always cause division. And then number three, watch this, the third thing he says, he says, choose the language that unites the church. Hey. Look at what he says there in verse number 12. He says, even so, 
As for uh, ye, as ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may excel to the edifying of the church. He says what you need to do more than anything, you need to speak the language that excels in building up the church of Jesus Christ. Dear friend, for us here at Maysville Baptist Church, it's English. We speak English. And in speaking English, Paul says this is a rational explanation as to why you do the things that you do. Because you want to edify the body of Christ. Because you want more than anything for people to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And then number three, watch this. Here's the third and final thing in verses 13 through 19. Not only does he give a rational explanation, and he says there ought to be understandable communication, but then he closes by saying there ought to be a personal participation. Personal participation. In verse 13 through 19 in this section, Paul links the involvement of the spirit, the mind, and the church together and says this is how the church should operate. Notice what he says here first and foremost. He first of all talks about the involvement of the Spirit. Look at what he says in verse 13. He says, Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. Paul is simply saying this. You need to make sure that your mind is lined up with your spirit before you begin to speak. So what, what do you mean, preacher? I used my illustration of Manly Beasley several weeks ago. And after I used my illustration of Manly Beasley, I had several, three or four people come up and say, you know what, Pastor, what you said is right. I experienced that same thing. And what I mean by that is this. Manly Beasley was in India and he stood up to preach. And as he stood up to preach, he turned to his interpreter and says, I don't need any interpreters today. I don't know why God's putting it on my heart. No interpreters right now. I'm going to preach. And he preached his message in English in India. And he gave a gospel invitation and people came. And hundreds and hundreds of people came. The uh, uh, interpreter was bumfuzzled. He didn't understand it. And so uh, Manly called him up. He said, go down there and find out why these people are coming forward at this invitation. And he went down there and he began to talk to the altar workers and to those that were coming down. And he came back up to Manly Beasley. He says, you're not going to believe this. He said, but, but they heard the message in their language. They heard you tell them, as you were preaching in English, Manly Beasley, they heard them talk about how Jesus sent his only son to die on the cross, who was buried, and on the third day rose again. Manly Beasley was saying, I listened to the Spirit's call on my life, and I used my mind. English was the only language that I knew, and I spoke just as God wanted me to speak, and people got saved. He takes it a step further. Watch this. He takes it a step further in, uh, in, in verse number uh, uh, 15 when he uses the involvement of the mind. Look at what he says here. He says in verse number 15, he says, what is it then? I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. That word understanding is the mind. Having the mind of Christ, knowing what I'm saying in my mind. My words are making sense. And he uses the word also there to tie the two together. He says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. What do you see here, Pastor? In verse number 15, we get a snapshot as to what the church at Corinth, what it looked like inside their worship services. There was preaching that was going on. 
and it was sporadic. It was uninterpretative. They were, they were acting like the Oracle of Delphi. And not only were they doing that in the preaching service, but they were also doing it in the singing service where they would stand up to sing. As they would sing, they would sing, and it would sing in, in, in erratic, just crazy, crazy tones. It didn't make any sense. And people were getting turned off by that. And, and they were saying, man, they're like barbarians. They're crazy. We don't understand it. And they would leave, and they wouldn't come back to the church. I told the uh, uh, 930 service, uh, went to a, a beautiful wedding yesterday. And on the way back home, Miriam, uh, who's studying to be a nurse, she was doing her homework on her phone. We were coming back from Dahlonega. And as we're traveling, I just I cut the radio on. And, and uh, the station that was on up there at that, in that region was an old-timey country station. And the song that came on was that little song, Teddy Bear. How many of you remember that old country song, Teddy Bear? Uh, that was, oh man, what an encouragement that was. And then after that song was over, uh, driving down, another song came on. I thought, ooh, this is a good one. And uh, Miriam just over there studying. And then here comes Kenny Rogers' voice. Kenny Rogers came on there. And Dolly Parton. Islands in the stream. They started singing it. And man, I started singing along with them. And here's the deal. I can remember when my parents had that eight-track tape. How many of you ever had eight-track tapes growing up? My parents had eight-track tapes. You young people don't know what eight-track tapes are. Bless God, you got to Google it. Just go Google it, and you'll figure out what it is. And so I had them eight-track tapes in there, Dolly Parton and uh, uh, Kenny Rogers' Islands in the Stream. I don't know all the, all the whole song, but I knew the chorus. But during the song, I'd just make something up along with the tune. Just make it up as I go. In fact, that's what they were doing here. But they were using a sporadic language. And Paul says, you ought not do that. We're blessed to be able to put the words on the screen to sing. There's no reason why uh, you're not singing along with us unless you cannot see in blind. Paul says, listen, you've got to get your mind involved as well as your spirit. When you do so, whether you sing or whether you're speaking to someone, he says you do it, and there's a personal participation that involves the whole person. You're not speaking out of your mind. You're not, not in control of your body. We're living in a day and age where there's a lot of doctrine going on today, and one of those doctrines uh, revolves around you exiting your body and experiencing some nirvana and passing out and rolling around on the floor and barking like a dog, those kind of things. And Paul says right here, he says, listen, whether you're singing or whether you're preaching or talking, when you're in your worship, you need to engage your spirit, yes, but you also need to engage your mind. Don't lose your mind when you're worshiping. And then watch this. He closes in verses 16 and following when he talks about the involvement of the church. Look at it, what he says there. He says, first of all, else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupy the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what you say? He says, how in the world can the congregation say amen? When they don't understand what you're saying. They don't do it. When you speak a truth and, or you try to speak gibberish instead of speaking truth. So they're not going to say anything. Because they don't understand what you're saying. That's right. And the bottom line is simply this. That you need to understand what the pastor's saying. Yeah. 
You need to understand what the Word of God is saying. He said there's an involvement of the church that takes place here. And, and the tradition there from first century is that you say amen when an amen needs to be said. And an amen needs to be said is when a truth is, is expressed in regards to the Word of God. Like Jesus is the only way to heaven. Amen needs to be said when expressions like Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. You only come to heaven by the way of the cross. And so he says that these amens come across when people hear the truth. And it's the truth that sets them free. How does he know? How do they know what you're saying if you're speaking gibberish? Then look at verse number 17. He says, For thou verily givest thanks well, but, he says, the other is not edified. He says, those small groups, those small groups that hear you speak, the small groups that hear you speak when you are doing this thing right, when you are speaking the language that people can understand and not gibberish, he says they're edified, but not everybody is. So stop gibberishing and start speaking the language and use the language that the, that the congregation can understand. If this was a Chinese church, I would be speaking to you in the Chinese language. If this was a Hispanic church, I would be speaking to you uh, in Spanish. In this church today, the majority of people that are here speak English. And we all understand English. And this edifies the body of Jesus Christ. And through that edification, we know what the pastor's saying. And when he calls for someone to be saved, we can say, Amen. And our spirits can be led in prayer as we pray for somebody to receive Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord. On the first, in the 930 service, as I was preaching and giving the gospel, saying Jesus is the only way. He's the only one that can forgive you of your sins. He's the only one that went to Calvary to die on Calvary's cross for your sins. He's the only one that rose up the third day, victorious over death, in the grave so that you might have the victory over death and go to heaven when you die. And when I gave the invitation, he said, I got saved. He understood. And I shared with you this morning as we began this message, and in enthusiasm you clapped praising God. Someone got saved. Paul says in verse number 18, he says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than all of you. He says, I'm grateful that I speak the languages more than any of you. I know more languages than you can shake a stick at, he says. But then in verse number 19, he says, yet. He says, however. And he closes with this thought in this section. He says, however, in the church of Jesus Christ, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. It would do me no good as your pastor to stand up here and deliver this message in French. Do me no good. There'd probably be one, maybe two people in here that would understand it. My mother-in-law, uh, grandma, and maybe a few others might understand it, but that'd be it. But they also speak English. 
And so through my English preaching and the passion that God gave me, I preached so that they could understand. And so to you, and you, and you, and you. And if God ever gave me an opportunity to stand before a crowd of people and pray, and if the Spirit of God pressed upon my heart not to use an interpreter, I would preach in English and let God do what God wanted to do. Now, there was a theologian by the last name of, I believe it was uh, Varner. And Varner said the true mark of spiritual maturity is not vilifying someone that holds to a different doctrine of interpretation on a secondary matter. What he meant by that is just simply this. In the area of tongues, there's a lot of division in the church. Across the religious culture, there's a lot of division. And he says in regard to that religious culture, that there are differences. Christian maturity is understanding that if they're preaching Jesus Christ crucified, buried, and living again, they're for us and not against us if they're preaching he's the only way to heaven. Jesus had something to say about that. But the bottom line here in Paul's speaking is this. Paul, in his writing, says, as far as Christian maturity goes, we ought to speak where everybody can understand us. And the clearest message that should come from the church, according to the Word of God, is the message of prophecy. And that message of prophecy is that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to Calvary's cross, died on the cross, was buried, and on the third day rose again so that we might have eternal life through Jesus. You cannot get to heaven, sir, by going through a confirmation class. You cannot get to heaven, ma'am, by following sacraments. You cannot get to heaven by being baptized. The only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other way. There's no other way to get to heaven. Jesus is the only way. Let's bow for prayer. Maybe you're here today, and maybe you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. And maybe today the truth of God has been revealed to you. And as that truth has been revealed, maybe you, like that individual at that 930 service today, are ready to trust Christ as Savior. The Bible says today's the day of salvation. And dear friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, I want to give you that opportunity today. 
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here and you would like to trust Jesus as your Savior, I'm going to ask you to do what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And from your heart to God's heart, I want to invite you to say these words to the Lord. Say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I believe you are the Messiah. This morning, I ask you to save my soul. I repent of my sin. And I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I'll live for you. In Jesus' name. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe to the best of your ability and your knowledge and all that's in you, you prayed and asked Jesus to save you. I don't want to embarrass you. That's not my desire. That's not my goal. But the Bible says that those that receive Christ are not ashamed of Christ. So if you're here today and you receive Christ and you're not ashamed of the fact that you have prayed and asked Jesus to save your soul, it's me and I've got two altar workers that are helping me identify. I want to praise God and welcome you to the family of God. If you prayed that today and you meant it with all your heart, would you just slip your hand up real high and put it right back down and say, that's me today. I prayed. I asked Jesus to save my soul. Is there one in this service today? Thank you so very much. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Preacher, I'm saved. I'm going to be honest with you. There was a time in my life when I was closer to the Lord than I am today. And I listen to the exposition of the Word of God and I hear the Word of God expounded and, and explained. and It just makes so much more sense when I'm in worship on Sunday mornings. But I'm struggling in my personal time. Dear friend, I want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't give up. Keep reading. Keep praying. Ask the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. Give you the meanings of Scripture. Some of you here today are born-again children of God, but you've never surrendered for baptism. You need to be obedient to the Lord. You need to surrender. Some of you here today need to join our church. And you've been visiting for some time. You know this is the place God wants you. And God's moving. People are being saved. Lives are being changed. Dear friend, today, whatever your need, the altar is open today. Maybe you're here and you'd like for someone to pray for you. We've got altar workers ready to pray for you. Whatever your need, would you come to Jesus? Heavenly Father, thank you for the Word of God. Lord, thank you that it's a light and a lamp. And Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray that as we continue this journey, that we would never have tangled tongues. But we'd be clear, a clear middle sea. people might understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bless, I pray now, in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand today, Phil's going to sing. The altar's open this morning.
If you'd like to join our church, whatever your need, come to Jesus as we sing, Phil. Out of my bondage, sorrow and night, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come into the freedom, gladness and light. Jesus, I come to Thee. Out of my sickness and into Thy health, out of my wanting and into Thy wealth, out of my sin and into Thy soul, Jesus, I come to Thee. Let's sing again. Let's sing the second verse. Ready? Let's sing it. Altars are open. Come to Jesus as the Lord deals with our hearts. Out of my shameful failure and loss, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come. Into the glorious gain of thy cross, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of our sorrows and into thy balm, out of life's storms and into thy calm, out of distress into jubilant song, Jesus, I come to thee. We're going to sing one other verse. If you need to join our church again, the doors are open. We'd love to receive you. Maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you just need to come spend time with the Lord. Whatever your need, you can come on this verse. What's your need, sir? What's your need, ma'am? I had a sweet family come up to me in between services. They just simply said this, said, Pastor, our greatest need right now is prayer. We're adopting two little children. I want you to pray for us. Oh, what a joy it was to pray for them. That was their greatest need. What's your greatest need, dear friend? Jesus can meet the needs of your heart. Father, have your way in this closing appeal. In Jesus' name, amen.